0: Thank you again for joining us. If you don't know me, my name is Dave Mitchell, team leader here at Woodys and it's great to be in, in worship with you. And uh, I want to reiterate that welcome to come, come to tea with me this afternoon. It would love, be lovely to see you at our big house with that lovely cream tea. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Andrew and Lydia, who are sitting over there. Wave to us, Andrew and Lydia. They're getting married next Saturday. Congratulations. <laughs> you may even have bagged some sunshine. You know, it looks like it looks looking good so far. Um, now, over September, it's very much a, a restart and a recalibration of, in all kinds of ways. It's the back to school, back to work, news, the city, lots of change. We give you far too many notices for you to take in, so uh, it, it all happens. And um, but uh, over the, the month of September, I've chosen to uh, speak um, on uh, somewhere on Woodlands every Sunday, and you know we, we have a te- preachy team. We, we don't always go through a series, but somewhere. Woodlands, morning or evening, I will be speaking in September. Because for me, this this series that we're looking at, which is under the title of Both And, is a fundamental one. For me, it's the lens in which I believe we are called to understand our faith. It's the way we're called to do church. And I suppose it's an opportunity to kind of most, both kind of set some priorities and, and, and uh, vision for the future, but also just to kind of deposit a little bit of something I think is just too important not to, not to celebrate. So both and it is. And um, I don't know about you, but if how many of you enjoy tension? Put your hand up if you do. Honestly, you know, tension can be enjoyable. My wife, Tina cannot watch live football, particularly England. The tension is too much for her, you know? I also find it quite tricky to know what kind of film I can watch with Tina because anything with an edge of suspense, it can kind of just play on her mind and get get a bit twitchy. So, you know, I'm talking about someone who almost left watching The Return of the Jedi because Gabba the Hutt was too much. So, um, you know, we have to be careful what we watch. But to my mind, tension is vital for the enjoyment. If, uh, you know, in in a game of football, if one team was always going to win, it would be as boring as watching Man City play, wouldn't it? It would be dreadful. Um, We want to have the tension. Something could happen with the prediction. It's it's unpredictable what's going to happen. We want to see a film with some tension in it. Otherwise, it's just bland, isn't it? So tension is something that we do live with and which is actually creative. And tension is something that's not only creative, but sometimes it can make all the difference to success or not. Sometimes, you know, a team has too many like-minded people and not enough tension in it. I think that um, when uh, there's a book called Rebel Ideas, which kind of explores this, the fact that sometimes in in, um, national um, think tanks, there's not enough divergence for the for the usa when when the invasion of Iraq happened, um, you know part of the problem with what that disastrous piece of, of, of foreign policy was that there were not enough divergent thinkers who really understood perhaps a little bit of what it, what it might be like in the uh, an islamic um, non western view of the, the world you know there's a kind of says of course people are going to want western democracy because there was a a uniformity of thinking rather than a diversity of thinking in that particular bit of foreign policy. And sometimes where we are looking for unity, we look for uniformity instead of holding together creative tension. And I think that actually the way that God created the universe and the way God intends things to be is by giving us creative tension in order to be able to hold together things that are too big for them to be uniform. So when God created the heavens and the earth and made human beings in his own image, he chose to make them male and female. And there's something in there which is unity and diversity. Now, again, I I don't want to, you know, people, male and female, have a spectrum of personality traits. But having been married for 43 years, I recognize there are some fundamental differences and tensions that Tina and I hold in common. And uh, we are incredibly complementary at one level and incredibly different at another level. And sometimes our differences can really jar and grate on one another. Tina is a completer finisher. I am a butterfly. <laughs> you know, Tina is, is, a, is, is a systematic planner. I like to keep my options open. You know, we, we, ha- we have differences. And early days of marriage, when it comes to a day off, right, ah, let's chill, let's see what, you know, I want to know what we're going to do. It, it brought attention tension into our day off, and, and we've learned to resolve those tensions. The reality is, I am not the same as Tina, Tina's not the same as me. And when we work well together, when we bring our differences into harmony, we are far better together than if we were separate. If I tried to make Tina like me all the time, or she tried to make me like her all the time, we'd be far less fruitful and far less able to do things than we are now. Of course, the reality is sometimes we can really grate with one another, but we can also find that we can hold those creative tensions that we are much more fruitful. And I just want to commend that in so many spheres of life, creative tension. You see, the thing about tension is it can be perceived as a problem to solve rather than attention to live with. And so often we have to look at differences, different points of view, different um, programs or practices, and say, is this attention to manage, or is this a problem to solve? But the early church had to navigate significant tension. And one of the, the most helpful chapters, I think, in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 15. Now, it may, it may be not your go-to chapter, Acts 15, because it's called The Council in Jerusalem, and you might think, oh, well, maybe that's a bit boring. I'll skip that bit. I don't, I'm not sure that I'm that interested in councils. But in reality, that chapter describes events which were fundamental for the whole course of the future of the church and the future of Western civilization. Because it's in that chapter that the early church navigates what does it mean for us to accommodate... Gentiles who are becoming followers of Jesus, who are becoming believers. And um, you know that the early church was a Jewish church. And it was steeped in the traditions and practices of Judaism, which were very formed. They had hundreds of years of of understanding and responding to the law of Moses, of the Old Testament scriptures, of, of practices that would enable them to stay together under hostile powers and domination. And so they became very Jewish, and Jewish identity was a really big thing. And so when the followers of Jesus were were coming to faith out of that Jewish um, movement, of course, the default understanding was, okay, well, these guys need to take hold of the law of moses they need the guys need to be circumcised the the women need to obey all these particular practices that we have in common we need to be following the food laws we need to look at the the sabbath keeping the the the, the work patterns Uh, and and the hundreds and hundreds of rules and regulations that came with being a good jewish boy or girl if that had been the direction the church took do you think that we'd be sitting here today I don't think we would. I think it would have maintained a Jewish sect. But actually, what the church did was look at the tension between being Jewish and being a follower of Jesus and say we need somehow to hold these two things together. How did they do that is explored in Acts 15. And in Acts 15, um, Paul and Barnabas make their way to Jerusalem to the council. And and, uh, the first thing that the ingredient that helps them understand that we need to do things differently is this power of testimony. Paul and Barnabas and Peter tell stories of what God has been doing amongst the Gentiles, and you can read those stories in the Book of Acts. I really commend it to you. And then there's the place of Scripture. What do we think of Scripture? And and, and James stands up. He's a leading elder, and after all the debate, he says, "This is what I think." And by the way, the Law of Moses is read everywhere. So what we decide, someone got to bear reference to what's preached in the synagogues every Sunday. But we also need to. Someone managed this for the, the new believers. So I'm going to read to you from Acts 15. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they'd finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it's written. After this, I will return. And rebuild David's fallen tent. It's ruins I will rebuild. I'll restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It's my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city, from earliest times, and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So what you see there is, we've listened to testimony, we've reflected on Scripture, and we've also listened to a word of wisdom, which I think is a spiritual gift, a gift of the Holy Spirit, through James. And the final outcome is that the church council writes to um, the new believers and says, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we're writing, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You're to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, from sexual immorality. You'll do well to avoid these things. Farewell. They're managing attention. They're still um, they're doffing about to the practices that will make them acceptable to Jews. But they're not going the full hog of keeping the whole law and becoming Jewish. But they're not abandoning it either, they're holding it together. they allowed a Jewish and a Gentile church to maintain the unity that Jesus prayed for. And the reality is that sometimes in church history we polarize around one position or another rather than trying to hold things in tension. And I, the reason that I'm celebrating this and, and really want to push it is because there are many, many tensions that we in the UK have to hold and we at Woodlands Church family need to hold right now and that will set some of the framework for our life and practice holding things in tension. It's not an optional extra. We are living with tension and I'll I'll just let me tell you some of the tensions you're living with, with right now. You're living with the tension of being a creature and being a spirit. C.S. Lewis calls us spiritual amphibians. We're living in a material world and in a spiritual world. And that means that churches need to have human elements and spiritual elements. There is a human factor in church. Church needs to be a place where human beings have a human welcome, where they have a, a kind and friendly word at the door, where the seats are comfortable, where the temperature of the church is not too hot, not too cold. You know, it needs to be a place where it, it works for our creatureliness. Sometimes in church history, the church has ignored that, and ascetic practices have been driven because there's a sense that the body should not become, should be almost um, disciplined or denied because we're spiritual. And so ascetic practices of fasting and hair shirts and self-flagellation, and a whole range of things, dreadful. It doesn't work. It's not functional. But if the church is, just becomes a human thing, a club, and abandons the kind of the white-hot experience of encounter with a supernatural God, then we also become dysfunctional. And sometimes the church is accommodated to humanity and stopped really pursuing the life of the Spirit. Rather than living with the mystery, where's God going to break in and do things that only God can do? We try and just become a human institution that's got some nice ethics. And where that happens, the church dies. We need to hold together a radical spirituality alongside an understanding that we're human beings. We're living with those tensions. We live with the tension of reasonable faith. I think Thomas Aquinas said that, talks about faith seeking understanding. We are not irrational as Christians. It is not more irrational than to believe in God than to be an atheist. But it's not also strictly rational. I cannot ultimately convince you by absolute argument to be a believer in God any more than I could convince you to be, to be an atheist. We live with, with a faith that is transrational because the very universe itself is too big for us to get our heads around. We have to live with competing uh, views of, 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 of physics, if you like, to understand something that's only the universe, let alone the God who made the universe. And so we, we live with mystery around God. We live with mystery around God being sovereign. And yet, praying his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, an unanswered prayer. We live with the mystery of, of free will and God's sovereignty. Th- there's so many things, the tensions that we live with, but it's not irrational, it's transrational, but they're tensions that we live with. And I want to just reflect on a couple of things to whet your appetite for the series, because we're going to look next Sunday about some of the theology, theological issues we face in terms of holding things in tension. Then the following week, we're going to look at issues around practice of church and holding things in tension and we're going to finish the final week in september by looking at the now and not yet of the kingdom of god what's that big theological understanding that the kingdom is with us and yet the kingdom is still to come so that's where we're going in september um you you can follow me on your twitter feed or, or something um so some of the tension we have to manage in church right now We have to manage the tension between between being a place for believers and being a place for seekers. You could go one way or the other, couldn't you? In the Bible models of the gatherings, the synagogue is a place for the in-house, the family. This is where we have the rules, we understand it. But the New Testament church was different from the synagogue because there was an expectation that unchurched people were going to be there, which we'll unpack a little bit. But um, how do you do the business of being able to grow in your faith and go deeper with accessibility and welcome for people who are brand new? That is a tension that actually we, we want to manage. We don't want to just become a kind of theological seminary on a Sunday morning. Every now and then, people criticize Woodlands for our teaching because they suggest that we don't do um, a, a kind of Bible exposition in a, in a particular way that, that they think would be appropriate. And I think that, that one of the things that we've, we've done as a church leadership team, actually, is to kind of wrestle with how are we going to handle Scripture and teach Scripture and become biblically literate in, in our generation, and, and there's lots of structures that we have to do that. But what we do want to do is to, to preach from Scripture. It is our foundation. But we also don't want to just be pursuing a kind of ever and ever deeper kind of knowledge of the Greek nuances of, of, of this particular phrase. You know, I, I do a line-by-line Bible study on Wednesday nights. We're going through the book of Revelation at the moment. If you want to do that, you can do, do that with me. But we're not doing that here on Sunday morning. We're doing here on something which is really to help us in our faith and to grow it and to apply it. But it's also hopefully something that if you walked in, it's not going to be so obscure that you think, what's going on there? And that's similar with the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's another tension that we celebrate, word and spirit. We're not just Bible people, we're spirit people. And actually, those two things really belong together. I was um, was talking to someone yesterday about their, their story of coming to faith, and they said, Actually, one of the things that I noticed was different when I really gave my life to Jesus became a Christian was that the Bible, which I had been reading, suddenly became alive. And we see the way in which spirit and word really belong together. But, you know, it's possible, again, to be a church that is so um, kind of driven by theology that we become really hard for anyone who's not an insider to belong. And we have insider language. But it's possible also for church to become so accommodating that it just becomes bland, and we dumb down the tensions, the, the challenges of Scripture. Somehow we have to hold those two things together. And Paul is brilliant in writing about this in 1 Corinthians 14. or 1 Corinthians 11, right through to the end of, of the book, really, are a great biblical description of the way the church is at work. And Paul is clear there. He expects unchurched people, seekers, people who don't understand to be in your midst, and so he says to them, Look, you love to speak in tongues. That's quite a deep spiritual thing to do, isn't it? He says, When you speak in tongues, make sure it's interpreted and translated so that people who are visitors don't think you're out of your mind. What you have to do is explain. He's not saying don't do these things, he said, let everything be done, but decently and in order. There's something about explanation that counts. One of the things we try and do, and we're not always bad at it, is try to explain what's happening here on a Sunday. We try and introduce ourselves because we hope and expect that people who are new to our gatherings or exploring faith are going to be here. And if that's you today, by the way, you are such an important person. I and mean, so, we're so glad you're here. It's not easy to go into a strange building in a largest crowd. And, and it takes courage to do that. And it takes in- intentionality. At our 8 o'clock service... Um, Last week, a young guy came along, second-year student, exploring faith, interested, studying theology, probably, you know, but walking on his own. He came back this Sunday. I was so pleased <laughs> because it's hard, isn't it? But we want to create such an, a, a context of welcome that anyone can come, but also not that it's so bland, that there's no mystery, nothing to learn. So that's our, our we structure things in this way. As a church family, we're structured. Are we one congregation? Are we autonomous congregations around the city? If you visit us this morning, you need to know that Woodlands is part of a family. We meet in six different sites around the city. There'll be at least 11 different worship services happening in the Woodland Church family this Sunday, which we're trying to resource. We have a common governance, a common strategy to try and fulfill what we sense God calling us to be as a church in the city. If you come along to Newcomers tonight, you'll hear a bit about it. But what are we? Are we one church? Are we a kind of a group of congregations? Well, both and. We really are. There's a tension between what it means to do the local thing and the gather thing. Just as like there's a tension to be church in your midweek group and in the home and church gathering on a Sunday. But somehow these tensions make us stronger and richer rather than trying to just so simplify everything that we lose the benefit just like if we simplified football so that one team always won. That would be easy to understand but we'd lose the benefit of the fun of playing football. And here at Woodlands, as I finish coming to land, we're gonna have communion. That's a both and meal itself, more of that and on. But um, what's it all about? Is it about what we do or what God does? We're gonna have a week of prayer in a week's time. What's that saying? It's kind of saying like, God, unless you're at work, unless you build the house, we labor in vain. So, God, we, we've got to pray because we've got to pray as if everything depends on you. Because we ourselves can save no one. Is that is that true? So why don't we just down tools and just have non-stop prayer all the time and never do anything? Because actually God calls us to use our gifts, our intelligence, our energies in his service. Paul writes, this is one, Colossians one twenty nine, I labor with his energy. And the old adage is, pray as if it all depended on God, work as if it all depended on you. But there's something about a tension between what we do and what God does. So we'd love you to join us on that week of prayer, but we'd also like you to be kind to people (laughs) and to share your faith and to serve the city and all that other good stuff. So we're going to go into communion. there's a tension in communion, isn't there? Because who's this for? What's it about? When Paul says, you know, discern the body of Christ, well, are we remembering the death of Jesus or are we remembering that we are the body of Christ? Is communion about being right with God and recalibrate our lives and having our sins forgiven and being re-cleansed? And, or is it about being right with one another, about making sure there's no no disunity here, that we keep short accounts that we forgive one another? I think if you read one Corinthians, it's a both-and meal. It's horizontal and lateral, like so much. And Rachel's going to lead us in that communion now. So over to you, Rachel.